0: What I wanted to do was perhaps was do a bit of a kind of cook's tour in a sense of some of the kind of main conceptual frameworks I used in that book, um, and to talk about some of the kinds of uh, different examples of, of reality shows that, that I looked at as well. And it's kind of a nice contrast in a sense to Perry's paper, which focuses, you know, does a close reading of one show, whereas this is kind of quite a broad um, uh, kind of brushstroke take of various shows and various different types of lifestyle experts. So I'm using this um, term, lifestyle experts, to, to cover you know, quite a large range of, of figures. So it's everything from, from TV chefs like Jamie Oliver and figures like Trini and Susanna, who Perry has already talked about, um, to a host of kind of less well-known expert personalities. So these are all figures who um, are basically interested in kind of instructing us in the the art of everyday life, uh, and also around the presentation of self, and I think, you know, Gawk clearly fits very well into that kind of category. Um, And essentially, I mean, this this research came out of a very specific moment um, when I was based in Edinburgh in the early 2000s, and it was winter in Edinburgh, and there wasn't much to do other than watch <laughs> television. <laughs> and I was noticing at that point that a whole load of shows like, um, or precursors in a sense to How to Look Good Naked, were coming on, and increasingly coming on to primetime television, uh, which was you know, quite a, a, a breakthrough, because these shows had all been sort of hidden away on um, uh, daytime television prior to that. So... I started to to ask the question, you know, why why were we suddenly seeing this kind of explosion of of um, shows that were concerned with not just instructing women around the presentation of self, but increasingly men, and why were we seeing these kind of lifestyle experts on prime time television? And I mean, often this is explained in terms of economic arguments that you know we we saw a proliferation of channels then because of the deregulation of television, and we needed not lots, lots of kind of soft filler programming, um, and therefore reality and lifestyle shows fitted the bill. But I think you know that's only one small part of the picture, um, and there's a number of other uh, broader kind of contextual and political uh, reasons why we see this kind of growth of expertise at the time. So these are the things I kind of want to, to touch upon um, today. So, and I guess this speaks to this question that we were just saying about um, the rise of the ordinary... You know, how clean is your house, yeah. <laughs> a question I don't like to ask myself on a regular basis. <laughs> but I guess one, one of the, um, the arguments I make is that there's been a shift in the, in the mode of expertise that we see on television and a shift particularly from the more traditional credentialed egghead style of experts to this much more sort of ordinary uh, everyday uh, expertise where knowledge is tied to the domestic, um, the everyday and, I mean, that's obviously not to say that we don't still see doctors and, and phys- physicists and people like that on television, but I think they've been become they've become kind of more ordinary themselves and more familiar. Um, if anyone watched Embarrassing Bodies the other night on Channel 9, which I got asked to comment on, so I had to get clued up on that, the doctors on that are all very kind of funky and they're very undoctor like you know, apart from the fact that they do wear uh, white coats occasionally. But um, so I guess my argument is that um, even those forms of kind of expertise have become sort of democratised in a sense. Uh, And as part of that, there's been a kind of revaluing of a whole range of of knowledge uh, around the self, the body and the home, traditionally associated with with femininity. So this ties into some of what Perry was saying. And, And that knowledge is becoming increasingly positioned as expertise. So on television what we've seen is, is those kinds of topics that were once relegated to women's television or to um, you know daytime TV or to magazines etc increasingly over the past decade we've, we've seen that emerging on, on primetime television um, and you know particularly the makeover show I would say would really kind of sums up that shift you know everything from the kind of transform your pet transform your life kind of show like it's me or the dog um, to the kind of shows I guess that aim slightly higher at uh, making over children, so shows like Super Nanny and Honeyware, Killing the Kids which hopefully I'll get a, a chance to have a brief look at at the end of this talk. Um, and I, I essentially make the argument in the book that the kind of rise of makeover TV is linked to a broader sort of lifestyle culture that very much um, focuses on the self as a sort of DIY subject, as a a voluntarist mode of identity, um, this idea that we can all kind of construct ourselves uh, as whatever kinds of you know, selves or identities we want to have. Uh, and clearly that fits in with the emergence of all sorts of de- developments around uh, the growing dominance of neoliberalism, um, the kind of normalisation of, of the consumer citizen, etc. <laughs> So, and questions of gender are, are central to this, this lifestyle turn and, again, this is you know, interesting in terms of thinking about people like Gok. Um, Rachel Mosley has argued that we've seen a regendering of, of expertise over the last uh, decade on, on television and, and, in part, that's been about the fact that we're seeing you know, growing numbers of men presenting um, lifestyle shows and presenting on things such as cooking Fashion, So areas that have been traditionally marked out as as feminine. Uh, And I think one important kind of context for this is is the feminisation of the labour force. Um, So, and I think that that works out in a a number of ways. Um, At a literal level, there's a kind of growing number of kind of time poor professional women. And there's an interesting shift that one sees on television with with domestic space becoming a growing site in which um, basically, I guess, men are entering those spaces. Uh, They're becoming professionalised, sort of rationalised spaces. And, of course, the domestic is is becoming a a site of recognised labour in terms of wage-based labour as well. So I think this kind kind of shift is translated into... Um, The growing number, I guess, of of shows that increasingly scrutinise homes and and turn them into kind of sites of public spectacle. And I'm thinking of shows like, um, I don't know if you've seen the BBC's Life Laundry, but um, also Hoarders, which has been on here. And these are shows in which experts go in and reorganise people's domestic lives, essentially. And it kind of normalises the sort of notion of domestic management um, as a process increasingly requiring paid expertise, so professional expertise. Uh, and I think the interesting thing about hoarders is is that there's a real anxiety about that, about women sort of not being in the home and doing, and, and you know, the kind of dirtiness of the home is is kind of on hoarders gets manifested as a sort of pathology because there, you know, there's people who have. Hoarded so many things that they can barely actually get into their houses. So you know, um, yeah. So I think it's that shows kind of symptomatic of a sort of um, you know internalisation, I guess, of, of, of uh, I guess of, of what's seen as border social pathology. And I think another reason for the, the sort of rise of um, male lifestyle experts on prime prime time TV is related again to this kind of feminisation of the labour force, but a kind of emphasis on men being required to kind of um, acquire the kind of cultural capital or the forms of, of skills I guess that women have traditionally had around presenting the self, emotional kind of labor, managing interpersonal relations etc. Um, and I think the classic show that marks, marks that moment is is queer eye for the straight guy which I sh- want to show you a bit of a clip of. Um, which ironically now is kind of vintage television, you know, it's from the early 2000s. But I think it really was a sort of um, breakthrough show uh, in terms of, you know, this emphasis on on men acquiring these feminised or queered skills. Uh, And I think the interesting thing about the show is um, that it kind of makes over the makeover format as well. So it's, it's, you know, very fast-paced... MTV style, lots of loud music, fast-paced editing, lots of pop culture references, and it very much kind of directs itself as a kind of pop culture, at a, at a pop culture savvy audience, uh, and very high-end production values as well. So it, it, uh, I mean, we're now used to these kinds of shows, but when it first came out, it was quite a breakthrough. Uh, and just just to remind you, obviously, the five gay men on the show are all presented as, um, Lifestyle experts in particular specialist areas, and you know here, um, as symbolised by their tools. I particularly like the the kind of 007 hairdryer position there. <laughs> but uh, let's have a quick look at um, the show. Uh, I've actually it's just the opening scene of, of like a special yes, that's it of a um special edition show.
1: Right for the straight guy.
0: Oh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, to drag it into the big screen.
1: Drag the Which you can't. Can.
0: Yep. Yeah. So you just move <laughs> can it up. A...
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you can place
0: play on here. But... Um,
1: make
2: over the world, one street man at a
1: time. 37 years old. he climbing the poles and stuff? No, that's our job. John Guns don't people. That George. It's a lot. more it's a lot. My
2: legs are to get to drop the
1: Whoops. That's not it. Is that it? That
0: is. I can just keep playing it as.
1: <laughs>
0: Guys? Ah, oh, no, that's. Yeah. Oh. That's full screen there on the um, the one on the right, isn't it? The on of the the um, four. The one on the right of the four? Oh yep. You can't see on here. I can't see on oh, okay. oh yeah. Okay, that's really funny
1: is
0: it the red, yellow, or the green ones? It's uh... <laughs> Oh I see, I see. I'm sure Side tell me where to it is. are. No, 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 it's not... So... <laughs> I don't know how to navigate you to that. Oh, there it is, there it is. Yeah. Okay. Sort of, I have to do although... this
1: when I'm giving lectures all
0: the time. For some reason it's... um. Yeah, anyway. Gay street. Gay street and straight street. Is that the corner of.
2: Yeah,
1: What?
0: In in I was just going to show you the opening, bit where they um, run into people's homes. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. It's got that really Manchester scene, like Queer as music. Oh. Do you know I mean,
0: well, it's before Queer as Folk,
1: isn't
0: it? So it in England. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. So, no, it is it's after Queer Hour, it's just I like them sitting in the end. Uh... So lots of pop culture references, Reservoir Dogs, etc. etc. <laughs> Which made sense at the time. ...the culture guru
1: of Queer Hour for Straight Guy. And it's... ...bringing you on February Queer Hour. <laughs>
2: oh my god, Carson, we have a situation. Oh god! You're tanner
0: than I am, and I'm tanner exit. It was your volleyball team that turned you in. Schemers. I see straight people! I had to go to the I straight people, but I just. Pause again. Yeah. yeah Stop that. So so it's a very very clever, I think, playful show, although with very normative, conservative values in many ways, I think underpinning it a bit like a gawk in many ways. But, um, I mean, it's an interesting show because I think on the one hand you see a kind of um, valuing of, of queer and, and feminine um, skills and expertise. Uh, but, I, but I think also this um, really is, is what Shelley was raising... Um, I think that the use of camp is a way for make, to make the feminine much more palatable to the audience. And I don't think women could have been the Fab Five and, made over, and you know, do makeovers on men. So it had to be, be these kind of hybrid masculine-feminine kind of figures. So, so the show you know, isn't quite as radical as perhaps it badges itself. And it also very much distances itself from the kind of domestic drudgery of feminine labour. Um, so, you know, cooking, shopping, everything is just this fun, boys own an adventure, and they run everywhere. They run in the streets, you know, <laughs> they're driving in their SUV, and they run around people's houses, and it's all so much fun. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's I think, um, a, a kind of masculine makeover and very much trying to distance itself from the traditional makeover show. Uh, and I and I think it really spawned, you know, I guess, a, a lot of shows that, that drew on that kind of element of... of I mean um, Jamie Oliver clearly, and you know uh, on his Vespa, um, you know very much uh, again emphasising the kind of fun and leisure aspects of cooking, and MasterChef, you know more recently, um, you know again emphasising cooking as leisure. Now the the other kind of I guess um, major model that's been used to kind of think through reality and lifestyle TV has been. To think of it in terms of class. Uh, and, and as I was saying, Gareth Palmer has written an interesting piece on Trini and Susanna as kind of, you know, thinking about them as sort of gurus of good taste, I guess we might see them as. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's quite easy to read these lifestyle experts in kind of Bourdieuian terms, to use Pierre, Pierre Bourdieu's notion of the cultural intermediary to understand these figures as kind of mediating between bourgeois taste and. Um, the kind of lower-middle-class, working-class, aspirational audiences that you know, many of these shows are oriented towards. Uh, but I think, you know, and this gestures towards some of the things people were saying in the audience about um, how to look good naked, there is a certain, um, the other side, I think, of reality TV is that we are seeing a lot more ordinary people on television. There's a lot more of a d- diversity of people on prime-time TV. And it has been argued that there's a kind of democratisation process occurring there. And I mean, I think it's a complex mixture of a range of, of things. And I also think there are there are different TV traditions that we're talking about in the UK and the US around, say, the kind of trash-style TV shows that you have in the, the, the US versus the UK, where, where a tradition of kind of, um, I guess, um, you know, thinking about the sort of, social experiment, television, popular documentary styles of television uh, from the UK, which I think some of these reality TV shows come out of. So they're, they're different kinds of traditions, I would argue. Um, but I do think um, there is a strong uh, kind of trend within within particularly British shows um, towards a kind of uh, humiliation style of, of reality show. Um, a fairly sort of moralising um, uh, style of makeover show where you, you have kind of working-class people who get made over by fairly didactic, moralising lifestyle experts. And I guess the shows I'm thinking of are Lad Lady, which we talked a bit about last week, um, but also The Biggest Loser, Honey, with We're Killing the Kids, which I'll um, show a bit of. And, I mean, they're, they're, those shows are very much about Kind of diagnosing and repairing the sort of lifestyle deficiencies of bad citizens. So they're and they're fairly kind of overt um, in that way. And 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 many of the people on the show are kind of you know they're either sort of foul mouthed chabs or they're <laughs> obese bogan's. You know there is a t- tendency to kind of yep, there's a, a tendency in a sense to pathologize a particular kind of social group. And uh, at the, the the other end of the spectrum. Um, Oh, actually, there's a slide. The slide, busy, but um, there's the kind of more, um, I guess, softer pedagogical uh, kind of shows, such as MasterChef Australia, um, that really kind of emphasises aesthetics, etc., and you know the kind of um, the good life. Uh, and you know, I think that the the, the, the kinds of figures of expertise on those shows are much more kind of friendly and, and comforting in a sense. Um, And, I mean, MasterChef Australia has been talked about as being kind of a bit of a reaction against sort of humiliating reality TV and, you know, being a much nicer kind of variation on the reality show. Um, I think the interesting thing about MasterChef is that it promotes very high-end bourgeois cuisine uh, on, you know, a commercial network, and it tries to aim at a very broad audience. And I think it works very hard at being on the one hand sort of aspirational TV, but also um, being careful to distance itself from, from being too posh. Uh, and I think we, we see that also with figures like Jamie Oliver, who uh, on the one hand is kind of, you know, he's, a, he, he's an expert in Italian cuisine, he speaks Italian fluently, he's cooking pretty high-end stuff, but he continually tells us on his shows that this isn't posh nosh, but it's, you know, it's food for the punters. And, you know, this this whole kind of performance of, of Mockney, which, you know, he's been mocked for, uh, I think is him distancing himself from the kind of class dimensions um, of the show. So it's a kind of, I guess, a refusal or disavowal of, of you know, those those kind of classed elements. Um, and I think the, the other kind of central element of, of that sort of Bordurian model of the, of the cultural intermediary is, is clearly that they mediate between... Culture and, and the market—if you know, if we can make that distinction anymore, which I don't think we can—and uh, you know, figures like Jamie Oliver are clearly um, kind of icons for that sort of form of mediation. But also, um, MasterChef Australia, again, I'm presuming most of you have seen the show. Um, and Perry, you probably haven't, but the Australian version of the format is very um, branded. There's a lot of cross. Promotional uh, elements to the show, and it's um, uh, it's bought in you know enormous amounts of money for for Channel Ten, and it very much sort of promotes and naturalizes consumption. And there's a lot of sort of um, you know what gets called below the line advertising in the show. So, as parts of storylines, you know there'll be products. You know when people have to look up online recipes, for instance, you get to see the whatever brand and technology they're selling on the show. Um, so we're seeing a kind of pretty blatant sort of merging of con- consumer and um, informational discourse. So this kind of natural- naturalizing mm. of, of that kind of merger. And particularly we see that with the kind of cross-promotional stuff that Coles has been doing with Masterchef with um, Curtis Stone. I don't know if you've seen those, but he does these little kind of Masterchef style vignettes where he uses Coles products. Because, of course, Chef chefs shop at Coles, apparently, <laughs> which we all know is bullshit. We all know that chefs never shop at Coles, but this is the kind of fantasy that, of the show in a sense. <laughs> um, but I think on a much more, well, I, I, I'm going to say a much more subtle, perhaps not a much more subtle, but a bit more of a subtle level, uh, are people like uh, Jamie Oliver, where, where I think that we're seeing much more of a kind of lifestyle branding with Jamie. Um, I mean, of course, he does do the sort of more overt selling of particular products, but I think increasingly with his shows... um, And, you know, if you think about The Naked Chef was the kind of early model of that sort of lifestyle branding, and much of the show he was kind of swanning around on his Vespa and doing the sort of Italian mod thing and, and, you know, kind of selling a particular... The food went with the sort of broader lifestyle, and more recently, you know, as he's become kind of middle-aged, we get shows like Jamie... I don't know, middle age maybe. He's young middle age. but Jamie at home, he's kind of looking a bit paunchy, and he's in his garden cooking all this sort of home-cooked pro- you know, produce, etc. so it's... it's, um, But, you know, you, you you see the home, and sometimes there'll be members of the family, so, again, it's this kind of, um, you know, branding the lifestyle. And, and in a sense, I, th- I think of people like Jamie as kind of super consumers, to, to borrow McCracken's term. They're kind of idealised lifestyle Consumers. Um, Which brings me briefly to a point which I I don't really have time to go into, but I'm actually giving a talk for the Melbourne Free University on Thursday looking at ethical consumption and celebrity chefs, and particularly looking at figures like Jamie Oliver. uh, Because increasingly, um, and we're seeing this on a range of shows uh, like The Biggest Loser, there's an emphasis on actually critiquing overconsumption. And on regulating consumption, and on ironically pushing for these sort of good regulated motion, you know, notions of consumption on commercial television. Um, and Jamie, I think, is particularly interesting. I think of him as a kind of um, lifestyle evangelist. In, in more recent years, he's run a number of shows where he's been pushing kind of locavore eating, eating organic. Um, he's even critiqued industrialized global food practices. You know. He's, Shows like Jamie's Fowl Dinner's where he's critiquing um, battery hens, etc. So he's an interesting figure and um, Bell and Hollows have described him as a moral entrepreneur, which I really like. It's a, and I think it captures the kind of paradox of within capitalism that we've got these kind of critiques from within capitalism itself. Um, so I think he's a very interesting and complex um, figure. Now I'm going to skip that um, go on to the next slide. So I thought we'd just end with looking at um, a show that I guess is at the very kind of moralising um, kind of end of the makeover spectrum and which speaks to, to, again, some of the things that Perry was raising around uh, what's been written about quite a bit now in reality TV and that in scholarship, and this is the, the argument that as the kind of neoliberal state has pulled back from you know, providing support, social support around education and health, et cetera, that reality television is increasingly stepping in to fill the gap. You know, and people like Laurie Olliette and James Hay have written a book in the US are called Better Living Through Reality Television, where they make that kind of argument. I think it, it, it's a bit more com- complex in, in the Australian setting, but, but I think we do see elements of that at, at play here. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's interesting to, sh- to see increasingly... Um, lifestyle shows focusing both on pleasure and responsibility, aesthetics and ethics. So we're, ca- we're increasingly getting this kind of you know, combination. Uh, and I, and I, I mean, the problematic dimension of that, of course, is this sort of um, increasing individualisation and psycho- psychologisation of, of broader structural social problems, and that's been particularly played out with obesity. I mean, that's probably one of the, the biggest areas where reality television is kind of stepped in and, you know, The Biggest Loser being the classic show that really kind of um, pathologizes individuals uh, and and kind of uses, I guess, technologies of surveillance. um, You know, the sort of Foucauldian argument about um, governmentality and internalised forms of surveillance, um, I think uh, is very much, you know, played out on reality shows and where lifestyle experts as well kind of teach... um, the people on the show to, in a sense, internalize the gaze of the expert. Uh, and the interesting thing on The Biggest Loser is, you know, in those confessional moments where they have the way in on stage, people will often actually use this quite psychology, psychologized kind of language that they've sort of learned, in a sense, from from popular culture to, to kind of diagnose their own pathology. Um, and yet, yeah, so as they confess to, you know, the audience and the larger audience, uh, there's often this kind of. You know, I, I'm often amazed by how psychologized actually the terminology people use about their own kind of problems are. Um, so I wanted to show a, a clip from this um, show because it, it, it's uh, again I think it this kind of individualized psychologized um, uh, kind of approach to, to board social issues is very much at the heart of Honey We're Killing the Kids, which was. Um, a BBC format that got um, made over as an Aussie format uh, a few years back and I actually went to watch the making of the show uh, and I did some field work um, which was really interesting Meet the Mark's family,
2: there's dad Eddie,
1: yes. mum Ray and their son Andrew 11 and daughters Kim 12 and Kirsty, 10 Their house runs oh. like a bed and breakfast service included okay. Kids call
0: the shots. I think they're pretty much boss one turn three. <laughs> they eat what they like? I'm gonna desert And watch what
1: they like. As soon as I get home I go to the TV, because there's nothing else to do. What they don't seem to like is each other.
2: What you finding down you right thing!
1: But child development specialist Dr. Anne Purcell is gonna confront mom and dad with a shocking image. You're killing them with kindness. Ray and Eddie had just three weeks to take control of their children's future. I'm going to that. Stop, Kirsty. Why are you no, suck you're a fucker. I don't know what finished. It's serious. Never seen such strong actions ever, kids? That's why you had the video on. No, it's bad,
0: Yeah. So, um... Yeah, so the premise of the show basically is uh, Dr. Anne Purcell, who's the, the expert, um, observes these families who have hidden cameras planted all around their home for a week and observes all the kind of behavioural problems and uh, the eating problems and the too much you know, watching television, etc, etc. And then a whole team of experts goes in and kind of intervenes and changes their lives quite dramatically over a three-week period. So they basically get rid of all the sweets in the house. They take away a lot of the screens, televisions and uh, limit screen time, which I think is kind of ironic for commercial television to, to be doing. And um, so, you know, one of the, the weird ironies about that sort of ethical consumption um, message of some of these shows. And um, they also, you know, enroll the children in various kinds of things like judo and etc. And they and they kind of get the family to... Spend a lot more time together, and very much promoting kind of middle class models of, of family togetherness, etc. Um, and uh, yeah, and the, the other thing they do, which um, is is show these um, quite horrific <laughs> images of of these morphed images of of which look to me like you know forensic police kind of you know headshots. Um, of, uh, you know, how the child will look like at 40 if they continue to be on the current diet and, you know, behavioural trend that they're currently on. I don't know how scientific that is, but, you know... Yeah, and, well, the other thing is... I mean, actually, I don't have it there, but they often seem to develop mullets... <laughs> which, uh, you know, didn't realise that was a side effect of eating too much fatty food, but apparently it is. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, a very, it, it's got a very sort of moralising, middle-class element to it, this show. And then when, after three weeks, if they put into place all the things that Anne Purcell tells them to do, then they get shown a new morph. And, of course, in the new morph, the children look, like, you know, lovely when they're 40. So... <laughs> So it's a pretty simplistic kind of um, you know simple sort of model, Uh, and the show didn't do hugely well, Um, but it's a very British format I think as well, and I don't think they Australianised it very well. Um, I'm going to show that last image, which um, it's very. But in terms of kind of Foucauldian technologies of surveillance, and I mean they have this horrible space that I spend a bit of time in, where the parents come in and they get shown on that screen their life, you know, they get shown some of the images of the family and the children and they get shown the morphed images of the um, children and uh, and they cry a lot and Anne comforts them and thank God she's a psychologist because they're wrecks by the end of the show. So, you know, so it's it, it, it's it was a very intriguing show to actually watch the making of, actually. Um, but I think, you know, it, it it it's probably a fairly extreme example, but it speaks to... To some of the things that um, Perry was also raising, uh, uh, around the way these shows are kind of um, speaking to a sort of normative, regulated um, citizen consumer, uh, and I think a lot, a lot of these shows have you know, similar kind of themes, even though they're played out through quite different forms and different you know, contents. So I might end on, on that, but um, I do have a couple of slides at the end, which uh, oh. Actually, that the they they're, they're not on there. Oh, there are actually some images from Asian shows, but um, I must have saved that on another PowerPoint. But yeah, so I'm just starting to, to do some analysis of lifestyle experts on Chinese television and on Indian and Singaporean TV, where there are increasing numbers of makeover shows. So that's going to be interesting. But but it's it's a, a far from simple transplantation of you know. Uh, UK and US formats into those settings because, for instance, in India, I've been watching shows where you kind of have yoga gurus alongside, you know, um, fairly you know, Western psychologists um, alongside, you know, Bollywood stars. So you're really seeing, I think, competing, contested notions of selfhood and modernity being played out on those kinds of shows and in those spaces, which is interesting. Okay, so I might end on that note. Thank you. Hey, should we open up some questions? It was super quick. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> oh this is probably really obvious question.
1: Mm. Do they actually make any difference in
0: how people people's lives long external if they need I, so
1: that that
0: saw, right. Really... Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, right, right, yeah. Well, I mean, my, my I guess my, my um, supposition would be, and that's because, you know, I guess I'm, I'm really critical of this sort of simplistic, what I see as a simplistic individualised approach mm-hmm. that doesn't pay attention to the structural reasons why people might, you know, live, live the way they do. So on the... That, on the one hand, I have concerns about that. So, and, you know, Jamie Oliver, I guess, has been critiqued, for instance, you know, for pushing the organic eating local message to everyone. Um, because, as people have pointed out, if you live in, you know, a working class suburb of, you know, a northern town, um, there ain't too many, you know, high end organic stores available to you. So, you know, it's a, it's a very, it assumes that people have access and, and the cultural and economic capital to access those. Kinds of um, you know lifestyles and goods, so there's that that side of things, I guess. The other question for me, I guess, is I'm I'm ambivalent about this, and and because you know I'm, I'm thoroughly kind of middle class now, you know, become the the ultimate I guess self-managing middle class subject myself. But I but I do get disturbed by the sort of universalisation of of middle class notions of how of of health, um, and this obsession with being a kind of regulated thin person who, you know, doesn't watch too much television and exercises an awful lot and, you know, watches their diet. I mean, I, I, I think there's an implicit kind of um, class dimension to, to that that really disturbs me. So I have, you know, ambivalent feelings about that. But I guess the so, so I guess for me, the question would be, yeah, well, why, what, why are we asking, I mean, I guess for me, it's... it's It's a problematic um, thing for this show to be even going in and intervening in people's lives. So that's the first thing. Um, Whether it does have a long-term effect, I mean, I'd I'd probably um, be very sceptical that it would. Uh, But um, with some of these shows, they do go in sometime later and follow up with with families and often find that people have got, you know, not surprisingly slipped back into old routines or whatever. But I guess for me, I, I... I just think we need to be pretty critical about the whole basis of of you know, these kinds of shows. Um, I hear what you're saying, that like
1: a good show about um, female circumcision. And know, kind of trying to educate people, you know, this is what's going on in your family or maybe that's it but maybe some kind of you know, something that you couldn't be so culturally relative about that. Mm. Mm. Because I definitely hear what you're saying, that's
2: uh,
0: well, I, I, I don't think female circumcision is the same thing as obesity. necessarily. I mean, I think it's it's difficult to, yeah, it's What's comparing pears and apples in a certain way. But I get your point. I mean, yeah. in a sense, it's it's um, yeah, do it. You know, with female circumcision, there is that question. I mean, some people have raised the issue of how ha- you know. As Westerners can we intervene and, yeah, exactly. and impose yeah. moral standards. So but, yeah, it, it is a a, a relevant yeah. question. Yeah, well,
1: maybe that's <laughs> to explain that, you know, they used to have a a certain family situation where one was a <laughs> you know, there's a lot of misogyny kind of practices going on and they just sort of see themselves in that context and, you know, going to make changes or...
0: local, <laughs> uh, so I, I guess, guess my, my question, question would... Society, you know, yeah, yeah sorry. it does nothing. And it's
1: an, indicator, it's an interesting indicator of where <clears throat> society is at. Like, you're interested in it as a social product. But mm. the assumption is that it actually does nothing... Um, Two viewers or four
0: viewers. If it doesn't tell people in any way. Oh, I, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> no, no. I just not I don't. I
1: don't
0: look, I mean, I guess I'm way. not. I'm not so interested in a kind of in the notion of. I mean, I I, th- I think that it's it's hard to mm-hmm. it would be hard to measure what effect a show and you know I guess I, I would probably want to distance myself from, um, you know, questions of does this show have have impact. But I think the question of how people use it, use the show, um, I think, is interesting. And and I we in in Asia, for instance, we're doing lots of audience research. And I, although again, there there, I guess uh, I'm less interested in asking people, you know, the kind of meanings they draw on shows, but but more think about how their own practices of lifestyle are, you know, related to to re- reality shows, etc. And And in the Asian context, you know, it has been interesting to see people talk about um, uh, ways in which they might sort of draw on, um, you know, for instance, yoga has become a really big thing again on a number of lifestyle shows there, but it's got the sort of Western edge to it. And people talk to me about using yoga to um, de-stress because their lives have become increasingly pressured. And so it was really interesting to hear about yoga being repositioned in quite a sort of different way, but also that people were using, you know, television as a kind of pedagogical tool for learning ways of managing stress in that situation. So you know, I guess that does that does speak to some of your yeah, uh, your sure. questions I about to say that
1: you are what. In
0: how could use it. Yeah, well, I guess I'm interested in the sort of pedagogical elements of of the shows um, and the sort of. At, and the way in which those sort of educational, promotional elements carry particular ideological dimensions for them. Um, so, you know, and that's the thing I, I guess I think we should be critical and reflexive about. Yeah. Because it's easy to kind of go, oh, it's great, you know, they're teaching people to be healthy. But yeah. then it's that question of, well, what, what do we mean by healthy? And, um, you know, it, being being a, a non-swearing, middle-class family that um, you know doesn't have a TV in the bedroom or whatever is you know, why is that being held up as a norm of family life? You know, it, I guess I just want to interrogate that yeah, some of that. No, sure. Um, it it, like you know, that. even at the same time as I, of course, am completely inculcated in those yeah. values myself, so you know, yeah, it's um, I think it's interesting that you talk about cultural translations as well. So, I really interesting about John Yoruba translating, so, is it quite a- He's, he's big here, yeah, yeah. Um, he's bigger here now than in,
1: this, in the UK. This is kind of you know, like. But
2: he sort of was a he attached himself to San which is mm, good. You can, you know, the like mm,
1: Very good class. Yes, the yes. You know, not as is
0: you know,
1: is No, no. And uh, not, you know, Marcy's head which sort of my class. So, um, but he kind of says, you know, he from the
0: of Which is not quite right, is it? Because no, his parents, they, I mean, they own a pretty nice pub, and so he's kind of, he's sort of petty bourgeois, but they, I, 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 he does really perform a kind of, work, you know, working class lad. He does the lad thing, yeah. I mean, he's toned that down a bit more recently, I guess, but, I mean, you know, he was really critiqued for it. He I was made up a chain restaurant. Yeah. very
1: expensive, <laughs> a very small portion. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is,
0: and and I mean now he's. Well, it actually the Blair government put in a whole lot of money into school dinners programs after that. So, it, so he is has been a very interesting figure. And and here, here he's. Um, so you know how he's had the fifteen. the the restaurant 15, where he trains, you know, yeah, Yeah, so he's done that here as well, he also has implemented a whole, um, a number of programs around health, Um, so he's running a a Jamie's kind of healthy eating and cooking program across Australia, and now he's, he's, you know, he's also tried to move into the US, where he's finding it much harder, because, um, you know, it's much harder to battle big business there, Mm -hmm. and so you know Jamie's food revolution, which kind of critiqued, um, you know, global organised. Well, yeah, you, he
1: did. Really, it was, and the He industry got really yeah. slagged for it. They didn't
2: like
0: being told what to do by companies. No. Yeah. And and I and also I think that kind of more, that kind of you know he critiqued yeah. um, uh, basically, you know, companies that were producing. Um, Food that he saw as you know substandard for and sending them to you know for school dinners, he was going and talking to the heads of these companies and saying you shouldn't be you know providing soft drinks to kids; you should be providing them with healthy drinks. And and uh, it just it didn't go down down well on U.S. television, which is interesting. I mean, it's you know I think um, yeah. It, but, so those different, I, I think those different forms of neoliberalism get get exposed. Yeah on its shows as well, which, you know.
1: Yeah. And I think some of the, I mean, like, master Shepherd's should BBC said, you can kind of yes. and it's yeah. funny, we can include some of the same. Yeah. Yeah. and you've kind of got that that transparency, or the authentic
0: transparency of kind of those unique-class values in BBC mm-hmm. from the UK. Yeah, yeah, which sometimes doesn't work. And I mean, I think... MasterChef Australia has worked very well because they've changed the format drastically. It looks very different if you watch yeah. the two shows. and um, In fact, the Australian format has been has been sold to a number of countries overseas. It's done very well, um, and the, the new format, which is much more commercial, very glossy, um, quite Americanised in certain kinds of ways, but a softer, less entrepreneurial kind of version of American reality TV. So it's been very effective, uh, very... I think it's a really, co- you know, I've written about, about it and I think it's a really interesting format because I think they quite cleverly manage to address a quite broad audience. Because on the one hand, you have, as you say, you've got the sort of more middle class, you know, amateur chef that they're appealing to, and, and lots of ABC viewers turn to 10, which, you know, was. And I mean, it, it got a massive viewership across um, social demographics and across gender. So it's it's an unusual reality show. But I think you know, also they they would go and do country women's association cook-offs and make scones, and they'd go and you know they really integrated kind of you know working class kind of values into the show as well, and were very careful. I think they were very careful to, to navigate the kind of class dimensions of the food, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Boarders, they've got a they've got quite a working class a broad working class audience yeah. as well.
2: Yeah. Oh,
0: well, yeah. The interesting thing is, you know, when they have at the beginning the larger group group of people who um, go, you know, try to get on the show, there are often quite a few working class people in that initial mix. But the last, the final mix. Um, Are usually fairly middle class, and you know they're often accountants or lawyers who are really bored and whatever. (laughs) Something about law that everyone wants to get out of law and become a a chef, but
1: to me
2: it's like there's there's aspiration in there.
0: Super nanny. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. it is still—it's primarily lower middle class, I would say. Looking at the demographic, you it's know, yeah, firemen and um, yeah, yeah mean, there aren't that many it? different. From, not, it's different from MasterChef in that sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Different. and I think that's that's about you know who's prepared to expose their body on. I mean, not you know most most bourgeois. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think the aspirational dimensions. I mean, it gets called. You know, these shows get called aspirational TV by TV producers, and and you know, totally right. I mean, psychology is right in
1: that right from the start. Mm. It's a really major part of it. So people, it really is about
0: people becoming self-reflective, and that's not really well. I mean, I would argue it is. And and Bev Skeggs makes a a good argument that the the sort of reflexive critical self that is often um, held up on these shows is a very kind of calculative bourgeois subject. Um, But I think it is is complicated by a much more democratised self-help movement, which really has, you know, since the 70s, has kind of democratised side discourse, as Nicholas Rose talks about this, um, you know, across... Class, And uh, I mean, ha- whether one sees that in negative or positive terms, you know, isn't the point in a sense, it's it's just, it, it is. It's the way that the social has become increasingly managed. Um, but I guess that some of the ideological dimensions of it become problematic, I think, in the case of obesity, for instance, where you do get this real sense with the biggest loser that people are being individually kind of blamed for, for something that I, you know... Ah, uh, so, yeah,
1: I, know, but I, I always think that it's like, uh, that it,
0: they to be Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: but that is about the eating, and it is about the consumption of things that is not useful. what I'm But you can find that the part of the And that's because because The high class of public can drop and get a second trainer and not have to go and expose themselves into the world. And it's always a, bit, I mean, a big amount uh, of money on like, actually
2: not like, a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, well,
1: I mean, uh, yeah, sorry, it did actually end. It's of people watch it, millions of people watch it. I think it's a Tunisia. And I know, and what I love is that they're always saying, if
0: I can do it, you can do it. So it's kind of like to that. Yeah, it, it's like. Generalise that and normalise. Yeah, look no it, totally have you you know get what you're saying and, and I mean but but I mean if if one looks I guess at, at questions of how fatness, for instance, has been constructed historically um, in the in the, the present moment. Basically, obesity is often associated with, with you know, more with lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. groups, and so there is that kind of well, sociological low dimension. Yeah. So. so. What that show does, which is quite interesting, is it, it does go through nutrition. And- yeah.
1: Look, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. And so you know,
0: with embarrassing bodies, which I recently commented on. I, you know, I was. I did say that's a very informative show, and I think it does democratize knowledge and do all those things. But I think, and I think the same with *The Biggest Loser. It does all those things. But I think it's got over
1: I mean, I've
0: always I I guess it's thinking about those sort of ideological underpinnings, and also the sort of the particular sort of entrepreneurial self that many of these shows kind of push, you know, which for better or for worse, it it, and it is this kind of you know you need to be a slimmed down go-getting version of yourself to make it in life.
1: So. Mm. Well, it
2: yeah.
1: But you
0: know, I just love to see a reality show where people all enjoy themselves, get fat and smoke a lot. And I'm just getting sick of the sort of lot like of moralizing. You know, it's like a drug or a drug show where you just got to take lots of drugs. I mean, that would be great. <laughs> kind of anti-reality show. I think i really with what you're saying about
1: sort of is really closing down. It's like now the smoke has been uh, almost vilified. I mean, I gave up so many years ago, and I'm going to take that for year 160. <laughs> 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 you've two years before you die of cancer. And so then I've uh, yeah. to so oh, I want to die. But I to before. And I'm here now. Because <laughs> you've stopped yeah. for
0: long now. Yeah, That's <laughs> the ultimate calculative approach, though, isn't it? Yes. You know. Yes. Okay. okay.
1: Yeah.
0: but this is the other thing think about MasterChef versus The Biggest Loser on MasterChef they encourage overconsumption they encourage fatty food meat Vegetarianism is a marginal element of the show, okay? But it's middle class. You're allowed to you're allowed to eat like that if you're middle class. On the biggest, lo- I mean, I'm being very simplistic here, but I do I, I I feel like the biggest loser. It has elements of the kind of carnivalesque, Bactinian, you know, uh, the the more positive, let's just let it all hang out on television. But I think it also does have this kind of, you know, normative middle class es- aspect.
1: Yeah, I think you're
0: you're you're some critical distance needs it is, it is to be had on that show. Because they do
1: go through those cooking and those nutrition things, and they yeah. do learn about food, and so they do, do learn to appreciate good food, just like they do in master where they have a master.
0: But that class. would be but that would be my point. I mean, they they're being trained to be cert, to be but certain, certain kinds of subjects.
1: Whereas in MasterChef they get told to put a whole block of butter in there. Yeah, because it's, it's
0: because if you're middle class, you're, you're allowed to have the complexity of of.
1: That.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. i
1: absolutely
0: i Well, I do love the complexity of that. You know, on the one hand, you've got two fat ladies, and then you've got bloody Jamie Oliver on the other hand, sort of. Uh, pushing the sort of health and ethical eating agenda and it's just...